Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Femme fatale qui me fut fatale. On s'est connu, on s'est reconnu, on s'est perdu de vue, on s'est reperdu de vue, on s'est retrouvé, on s'est réchauffé, puis on s'est séparé. Chacun pour soi est reparti dans le tourbillon de la vie. Je l'ai revu un soir, aïe aïe aïe, ça fait déjà un femme bail, ça fait déjà un femme bail. Hi Jenna. Hi, Bart. We've got a special guest on our episode tonight, but it's another one of our ghost guests. Oh, boy. <laughs> Sometimes our, our guests aren't actual live human beings. But they once were. But they once were, yeah. Or we have their audio recording piped in from Florida sometime. <laughs> but today we're, we're talking about notable film critic Stanley Kaufman, who was at his peak of influence in the 60s. He's probably the critic from the time that I have read the most. Yeah, he was just uh, really pretty instrumental in making the American public aware of these great foreign films that were arriving on our shores and, and getting people to go out and see them. And uh, had you read much Stanley Kaufman before this, Jenna? No, unfortunately, I'm I'm playing the dunce in this episode because I haven't, I, I you know, I know him and I've read some of his reviews, but I've never read like a full book and I've really not he's not been the guy that I like go to typically when I'm curious about older reviews just in general you know not just because of the 60s I mean the the one that really stands out for me is his review of Star Wars which he sort of famously pans but also I think like it's funny as much as I love and adore and grew up with Star Wars and I I can't I feel like I can't even objectively watch those movies because I love them too much mm. the originals his review is like is great <laughs> he craps on a lot of movies I love he really is not about popular filmmaking at all and he loves to pick them apart he doesn't like the Godfather and just the biggest you know, crowd pleasing movies he's not very interested in and his criticisms are always really pretty valid. You know, he's intelligent enough that I don't tend to mind when he's picking apart movies I love, but he's most interested in championing cinema as an art form. So uh, any movie that doesn't push its audience to, to think a little more deeply or, you know, change the language of cinema, he's just, uh, you know, a little less interested. You know, that's fair. I think that's what I respect about it most. This was definitely a sea change time of the way that critics spoke about movies as either art or popular culture and that, that shifting focus on the film as a film versus as representational of, of a time and an era and a larger narrative. I, here I pulled up his review of Star Wars and I just want to read the best line in it because I think it's so true and also <laughs> like totally insulting he says, quote, this picture was made for those, particularly males, who carry a portable shrine within them of their adolescence, a chalice of a self that was better then, 
before the world's affairs or in any complex way sex intruded <laughs> <laughs> yeah perfect and i'm like yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know so it's not that he wasn't thinking about these things anyhow but yeah i mean his his reviews are are more interested in in the art of filmmaking as you said yeah he's not sociological like Pauline Kael. In fact, he's uh, sometimes referred to as the anti-Kale. You know, most most famously, Pauline Kael and Andrew Saris had this sort of, you know, really famous battle in the 60s about the auteur theory. Andrew Saris was really just interested in directors and, and their body of work and how they're all the same. And Pauline Kael says, no, nah, that's bullshit. There are so many people who are involved in making a film that uh, you have to think about all the, all the contributors. But in a lot of ways, their their tastes were kind of similar, and they sort of were approaching film from a, a similar sort of, you know, psychological perspective. But Hoffman was kind of the opposite. He was intellectualized film, and, you know, whereas Hale was more interested in, in the sensory effects of a, of a film, the effect that the, a film has on the audience. And, you know, she, she wrote about it in an intelligent way. Whereas Stanley Kaufman, you like to intellectualize film and, and talk about its artistic merits. I, th I think the big difference between Pauline Kael and uh, Stanley Kaufman is Pauline Kael famously would only watch a film once and she would often get, you know, certain details a little wrong in her, uh, in her reviews and, and you're know, mostly just based on her holistic experience of the film, whereas Kaufman would return to films over and over. And my favorite collection of Stanley Kaufman essays called A World on Film is that it takes the essays that he wrote for the New Republic and collects them. But at the end of quite a few of them, he adds a postscript because he's seen the film multiple times since and he's sort of changed his perspective on the film. And I really like that about him and this collection. He's not so, I don't know if didactic's the word, but he's not so, you know, I'm, I'm right and you're wrong. There's one perspective on this movie and, and this is it. He's willing to think about how... You know, watching a movie multiple times can change your perspective on it and change your opinion. And in that way, I really connect with him a lot more than Paul and Kale. So the essay that I wanted to discuss today, uh, written by Stanley Kaufman, is his essay on Jules and Jim. I mean, I know that there will be titling this episode Stanley Kaufman's 60s pick, Jules and Jim. And, you know, if you go and read the, the review that he wrote in 1962 about it, it's not a terribly positive, flattering review. He He's not especially positive about it. He points out about how it's groundbreaking in certain ways, but he, he, he really, he picks it apart. But in the postscript to this essay, oh, and um, and then, you know, Pauline Kael took a lot of his negative criticism and used that in her own essay on Jules and Jim. and uh, Glowing essay. Yes, she loves loves the film, and she takes a lot of issue with, with things that uh, Kaufman said about it. So in that way, this sort of became one of his more well-known reviews, just because it was, uh, you know, the way that Hale used it and uh, sort of started a uh, her own one-sided one battle with him, in a way. But he, uh, in this book that came out, you know, five years after the, the original review, 
he's seen Jules and Jim a few more times, and he he's changed his opinion on it a bit, and he doesn't specifically mention this battle with Kale, this disagreement with Kale, but you know you feel in in his postscript that he's sort of saying, well, I was I was a little bit wrong about this film, and it, it's subtly responding to Kale here, and he does talk about the film in in a way that suggests that it really is a film that he sees as as extremely important. Uh, he says things like. Despite the dissatisfaction that Jules and Jim may leave, its execution is one of the brilliant achievements of the post-war film era. And later, at the end of the essay postscript, he says, uh, Whatever its shortcoming, Jules and Jim is one of the moments when the history of the film suddenly glows. So I don't think it's unfair to say that Stanley Kaufman would, uh, would highlight this film as one of the most important of the 60s. So... I'm calling it Stanley Kaufman's 60s pick. And that's also just because we already did Antonioni, right? <laughs> well, yeah, that's it. Uh, Antonioni really is Kaufman's favorite. He he loves the, the trilogy and, and Red Desert. I think his Red Desert essay actually is one of the first that really turned me on to him. Yeah, I mean, more than Bergman, more than Fellini. He really likes Fellini. You know, all those Janus auteurs. He was a real champion of, of Janus films and what they were doing. So yeah, my favorite essays of his are on Antonioni, but we've done all those films. So I, I, I thought uh, Jules and Jim would be an interesting film for us to talk about. We haven't done much Truffaut. The only other one we've done so far is uh, Fahrenheit 451, his other Oscar Werner film. And in a lot of ways, Jules and Jim is one of the most important films of the early 60s. The, you know, a lot of Americans latched onto it and, and got turned on to foreign film because it's such a lively kind of sexy time capsule film so yeah let's let's talk about jules and jim a little bit this was the first time you'd seen the film right i'm a rebel bart <laughs> i don't i don't follow the rules i'm not i'm cinematic. not trying to shame you <laughs> there are a lot of movies to watch <laughs> <laughs> no i feel bad about it because I, I Truffaut actually is like a weird he's like a weird blind spot for me i've really only seen like I don't I'm trying to remember if I've seen the 400 blows or if I've just seen so many clips of it that I feel like I've seen it. I haven't seen like Shoot the Piano Player. I really liked Two English Girls, but so this was the first time I had seen this and I it been, had been on my list and I'd been putting it off for a very long time and uh it wasn't it wasn't what I expected. It was much more interesting than I expected it to be, which I don't know why I had such a low opinion. I was like, oh, yeah, everyone loves this. Like, meh, whatever. I don't know. I tend to do this. I don't know. Like, I feel like I've maybe I've said this story on this podcast before. But like sometimes when, you know, something's an institution for me, you tend to ignore it. <laughs> like, OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. Picasso, he's really, yeah, whatever. He's famous. Well, you know, got it. You know, like, I get it. He's fine. Yeah. But then once when I was living in the UK, I went to Germany and I ended up seeing on a whim of like a show of Picasso's and it was focused on all the, the costumes that he had made and a lot more of his like uh, gouache paintings. And I was like, yo, guys, like Picasso's like really talented. <laughs> <laughs> and it took me like having this experience of really going to see like outside of the box of like, you know, the, the typical Picasso to be really wowed by him because there's just something about these things that become these like cultural, you know, I, they're just so they're so everywhere and they're so overexposed in a way that like you sort of you forget that they are actually art like you forget that 
the Mona Lisa is actually pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. You see it constantly, you know? So it's like that Jules and Jim. So like, so I end up in my head, I end up avoiding a lot of these things sort of consciously because I just feel like, ah, Truffaut, you know, like, yes, of course. These things that are talked about so much, you feel like you already have an impression of what they are. And you're like, oh, I'll get to that eventually. That I already know what that's right. all about. There, everybody, you know, I won't see anything in this film that you know hasn't been discussed a million times already. So you know, what's what what's the rush? But it's funny too because especially with the film world, I mean, it's pretty rare that I've seen something that was of this sort of like you know top tier cinema that then I then walked away thinking like meh, <laughs> yeah. like it typically like I walk away and I'm like, yo, Jaws is pretty solid, you know, it's <laughs> like. <laughs> Like, I don't know why it took me so long, but uh, so, yeah, this this was a very good excuse for me to finally sit down and, and watch Jules and Jim because it, it really had been like, you know, best intentions like one day. But yeah, well, this is a film that I've seen several times. This has got to be at least my third time seeing it. I think each time I see it, I agree more and more with Stanley Kaufman that there's a lot less here than meets the eye. The techniques employed in the film are so stunning like really just carry you along that you're it's easy to see how kind of shallow the story itself is let me maybe i'll use stanley kaufman's plot summary to give the plot of this movie because that's how he tends to start his reviews with a really succinct plot synopsis that ends up spoiling the end of the movie so i won't go all the way through but i feel like this is a movie we can spoil though yeah it'll be hard not to but i I won't read his full synopsis all the way to the the fatal conclusion. The story is about a triangle which is at first isosceles and ends up virtually equilateral. Jules and Jim are two young writer friends in 1912 Paris, the former an Austrian, the latter a Frenchman, who insist on the English nickname. Together they explore art, sport, love of women. Jules falls in love with Catherine, a French girl, who eventually marries him. Jim loves her too, but says nothing, contenting himself with another girl who loves him but whom he declines to marry. The war separates the two men. Afterwards, Jim visits Jules and Catherine and their daughter on the Rhineland and discovers that Jules is unhappy because he is no longer truly Catherine's husband. She has lovers. Still, Jules is satisfied as long as she will live with him. Jim and Catherine soon become lovers with Jules's knowledge. Then she tires of him because he cannot give her a child. Um, and, you know, it goes on and it's a love triangle, but in a not in a very straightforward, obvious way. And it's not quite a menage a trois either, because there's no sense that they're all sleeping together at the same time. It's just a sort of three way relationship where there's no jealousy, really. But it does demonstrate in the end the insupportability of, of this kind of triangular relationship. Kaufman goes on to say that, you know, this sort of quick synopsis does not really do an injustice to the film because it is kind of a patchwork that it's kind of just a lot of things happening kind of stitched together with really impressive technique. He says the patchwork effect of the script is reflected in Truffaut's direction, which returns us to the matter of art for art making sake. He says that earlier in the essay that the the movie is stunning because it's, uh, you know, it's a director using the film studio as, as his playground. And it's just, he says, the film is such a fireworks display of cinematic techniques and devices that our first impression is that we are in the hands of a master. Soon, however, we feel that we are only in the hands of an imaginative enthusiast. The film is filled with intense close-ups, lovely lighting effects, swift cuts, investigations of texture. 
There are freezes and resumptions of movement in mid-scene as the camera is arbitrarily stopped for a moment. There are sequences in which the camera is handheld for no apparent reason. There are fade-in tricks. On a black screen in the upper right-hand corner of the next shot is seen, then spreads out to fill the screen. Some of the newsreel shots of the war are distended to fill the widescreen. Some are used in their original 35mm width. Shot by shot, almost all of the film is visually exquisite. Yeah, the more I've seen this film, the more I agree that it's it's just a lot of really stunning filmmaking techniques, and the story and characters are not particularly interesting. You really don't get too invested in the characters and what they're doing. It's just, you get swept along with how fast-paced and exciting the film is to watch. You don't even notice that you're not particularly interested in the outcome of the story or what these characters are doing. It's fascinating to me because watching this and then reading reviews about it afterward, including Kaufman's, I was it was really curious to me to hear people calling it like full of life, <laughs> like this vivacious cinematic love triangle where I I actually found like I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think there is like a lot of great techniques being used like I think mechanically this is is an interestingly made film but I actually got really into the characters but only in the second half of the movie like I actually liked the second half of this film after the war way more than I liked the first half of it which was cute but empty to me and so once they finally start to get more into these characters and, and like deepening the details of this triangle and sort of giving you a fuller picture of who these people are, it suddenly got, I was like totally gripped by it, actually. It really um, reminded me of people that I know who have fallen into horrible relationships and can't and, and can't get out or took years to get out of. You know what I mean? Or like, you know, having had similar, but thankfully not as as like soul sucking experiences myself. <laughs> and I loved Kaufman's postscript for his review where and maybe you can you can better explain it. But I love that his postscript of this movie is to come back to it saying like now that I've seen it like 10 times, it's it's more exhilarating and, and tender and interesting than, than maybe I first gave it credit for it. And then he says, second, it becomes clear that Catherine always wanted to marry Jim. And he sort of it's like plot. He like clarifies some plot points. But he says, third, it becomes clear that Catherine is a psychopath and not the goddess that she is considered. And so for me, watching this from the get-go, I was like, oh, she's a psychopath, like, immediately. Uh -huh. And and by watching it and kind of following that through and seeing how it gets followed through and then seeing how these two men who are entranced by her can't seem to fully recognize that. And then when they do, it's like almost too late, essentially. Like, that to me was really fascinating because it was very much about how men view women and like this idea of buying into that she's a wild free spirit and so like that's what's attractive about her but like they don't they don't see her as a person because if she was a man and she was doing this stuff they would have dropped her like a hot cake like <laughs> years ago but because she's like this woman and she's breaking boundaries and she's living selflessly they they're they're so like intrigued by this as like a symbol that they they kind of forget how how selfish and horrible she is as a person the film itself kind of forgets that Catherine is a human being 
Jeanne Moreau does an incredible job. I mean, this is one of her most memorable performances. And anybody thinking back on Jules and Jim, they don't remember Jules or Jim, but they remember Catherine and how she she's so electrifying. She just jumps off the screen. And she's got so many moments that are, you know, just stand out where, you know, when she dresses as a, as a boy, she puts on a mustache and a, and a cap and sees if people realize that she's actually a woman or when she, you know, jumps into the Seine because she doesn't like you know, how Jules and Jim are talking about women. And, and, you know, she does, she has these, like, these moments that really grab your attention, but she's not particularly well developed. Like, you don't necessarily see what's motivating her a lot of the time she's just kind of selfish brat in a lot of ways and there's not a whole lot more to it she gets upset when she doesn't get what she wants and you know that's about all there is to it the more i see this film the more misogynistic it it seems to me just in in her character kaufman calls this movie a horror film in the in the postscript and it is kind of that like catherine is the villain in this piece and in a way it's not just Catherine it sort of expands that idea into the other these other free-spirited women in the film you know there's the one woman that that Jim hooks up with early on who who uses her cigarette like a locomotive stack and and she's you know really shallow and and he meets up with her later and she's just another one of these empty free-spirited women who who just like to have sex it's sort of Adds to the appeal of this time, particularly in the 60s, where this sexual liberation, where this movie sort of looking back on a time that, you know, this sexually liberated beginning of the century Paris, where, you know, everybody was just sleeping with everybody. The spirit and environment is, you know, I could see why it would be really appealing to a 60s audience, but it also, you know, really takes pains to point out the, the shallowness of these women who are, you know, living these bohemian lifestyles and, uh, and that you know, it becomes clearer and clearer the more I see this film. I think I think Catherine's very sympathetic, actually. And I think that we actually get quite a lot about her, but it's a lot of it is sort of unspoken because the this what she's fighting against is society. And I think that this movie is half about love and it's half about societal pressures. Because Catherine she proves herself to be as powerful and as capable as any man. And even to the point that she seems to be even more untamable and has more desire than any of the men that we see on screen. And, you know, when she jumps into the river, it shows two things to me. I mean, number one, it sort of shows me her psychosis. (laughs) (laughs) But it also shows that it's, it's grounded in this, you know, the two of them are having this discussion about how, well, women are, you know, women don't have any interior life. And her response to that is is a big fuck you. And she jumps into the river and they're so horrified by this because they can't. Why would a woman, you know, do this? And so her whole life is seems to be about trying to combat these lines that are being drawn for her. And it's even more tragic in a way because she, number one, can't escape because she's stuck in society and she's also stuck within the confines of her own mind because even later in the film when she then tries to start up her romance with Jim she wants to have a child and when they can't have a child she's just completely undone by it and that's because she has this expectation that love must result in a child you know which is of course this like brainworm being fed into her you know her head in in the early part of the century 
So I think that that's quite an interesting dynamic. And I think it was enough for me to sort of accept her as a full picture of, of a person that she is this sort of, but I, but I didn't ever buy her as being like the manic pixie dream girl that it seems that many people did. I don't actually watch this movie and think of her. I actually really do think of Jules and Jim. And, and that's part of why I like the second half of this movie because the first half is like cute, but the second half is really powerful because to me, it's all about, as I said, like it, it shows you how easy it is to slip into these like toxic, quixotic <laughs> relationships. It's it's so easy to like give into passion as a replacement for foundation. And the good in Catherine doesn't outweigh her, the bad in her. And, you know, she represents like freedom and boldness, but she doesn't extend that or share that with any of her partners. And so I don't think she's a bad person uh, in the sense, I don't think that she's trying to specifically, she's not setting out to hurt people, but she's a user. That in itself is a really interesting female character to portray because we don't typically get women as as the user in media. But then I think that the, tra the tragedy here is not so much the ending, which is tragic on its own. And I, you know, maybe I, I don't know, do I want to spoil it? Are we really going to not spoil this movie? It's too famous. I feel like people know, but. Seeing it for the first time, not knowing what's coming, it kind of takes you off guard and it feels a little out of place. Um, knowing it's coming actually helps. It is. It does. Well, go ahead. You were about to describe what happens at the end. It ends with a murder suicide. So, you know, and I, I didn't know that. That's actually something I didn't know going in. And it ends so fast that I almost missed it. You know, like I was, I'm like sitting there watching the movie and it's like you blink and you're like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> that was it. And then there's also so much of a lack of emotion that comes from, from Jules in the end uh, because Catherine is driving a car. She drives a car into a lake with, with Jim in it to his surprise as well. He doesn't really realize what's going to happen. They, they kind of expect she might try something because she's already pulled a gun on him and tried to kill him once and he had to jump out of a window. And of course, why he comes back to see her again is, is I think again, it, it comes back to this idea about toxic relationships and how you can, you really can it just keep getting pulled back into the, like, like I know exactly what's coming. He, Jim knows what's coming and yet he still gets in a car with her. And he knows that every other time he's gotten into a car with her, it's ended horribly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think that anyone that's going to watch this movie and only see the good in, in Catherine is like, it, to me, it's like indicative of like societal illness. It's like you expect this from from women. And, you know, you also expect that, but they had such a good time. And so the ending should be a good time. And so everything should be like beautiful and tragic. But like, to me... The, the most tragic part about this whole movie is the beautiful relationship between Jules and Jim that gets smothered under Catherine's like fist of, of burning desire to live. And it's sad because Jules and Jim should have chosen each other instead of having this, this woman and pursuing this idea. And I don't even mean that in like a, a gay way. I mean that like they had this beautiful supportive love for each other and they abandoned it for, for romantic love. And throughout the entire film, Jules and Jim never forget each other. They're always like doing things selflessly for each other. And even the fact that they end up in this love triangle is like, well, if it's going to happen, I'm just happy it happens with, with him because he's such a good guy. They, they clearly don't have this like vocabulary for, for that. Like everyone's so busy trying to get a wife and to conform to society. You know, and again, even Catherine is, is in the end succumbs to that, that pressure 
but like they have this beautiful friendship that that gets completely torn apart and then and then destroyed by Catherine and for to what end you know it's like it's just the sort of thing where why 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 even choose love when you ha- you already had this like really great beautiful relationship it wasn't everything it didn't like wasn't the all encompassing but you expected that from the romantic love and then and it consumed you so like to me it just like this movie was just so depressing it is a horror movie it's 100% a horror movie but it's like sort of shown in this like you know very truffaut like and then they died <laughs> <laughs> I mean, part of what's appealing about the relationship between Jules and Jim is the way that they experience the world together and they sort of form these ideals of what life should be and what great art is together. And they both at the same time sort of come to create this ideal of what a perfect woman is. And then she comes into their life, this Catherine. So they've already kind of set up that, okay, when we find this ideal that we've been talking about all this time of course she's going to come into our lives of course we're going to celebrate her and there's no conscious idea that oh we're both going to have her but there's this idea that when this ideal woman comes into their life they're both going to celebrate her enjoy her and i mean i don't think that she's a disruption it's uh, she shows the the problem of turning human beings into ideals really in art you can you can create this you know perfect narrative this perfect person and in our minds we can create these ideals but when uh you know we try and make these ideas come to life they're you know can't happen in in reality and there is this idea of of life versus art that keeps coming back to you throughout this whole movie and that really is the problem it's all three of these characters have these you know ideals of how how life should be putting that into practice is is the problem more than anything I like that that Kaufman also in his postscript sort of abandons he he sort of takes on this thread thinking that because they they mention uh Goethe in the movie that perhaps this movie is is semi-based on that and then in his postscript he sort of says you know the allusions to Goethe now seem part of Jules self-devised smokescreen and the film is not concerned with moral principle and is is not in any serious way a parallel with elective affinities Goethe is part of Jules own dramatization of his role with Catherine which I think is exactly what you're you're talking about it's it's a lot about this idea of you know what what our expectations are versus the realities and how expectations can really override what what we're actually getting on screen which I think is funny in a way because I think that that is maybe partially what a lot of the glowing reviews of this as being like this again this vivacious <laughs> romantic tale of like you know menage a toi <laughs> yeah my other main issue with this movie is that you never really understand what's drawing Catherine to Jim, like why he's such a more appealing alternative to, to Jules. I mean, you, you sort of, Oscar Werner plays Jules as sort of dopey, hangdog, lovestruck, kind of dull guy who just has this undying love for her and just wants to be in her presence. And he pulls that off. Like, I think you can see that in, in him. Like, it's it's fairly easy to see why these characters are drawn to Catherine, but I, I'm I'm less... I just, I don't understand necessarily what's drawing her to them other than the fact that they are devoted to her and she can manipulate them. And maybe that's all there is, but why, like, she can manipulate Jules all she wants. So isn't he the perfect 
man for her. The Jim is, you know, is the more free spirited of the two and uh, less less interested in in settling down. And E becomes the one that she really is enamored of and and is most disappointed with when she can't you know, make him conform to her will. And uh, but he just there's not much to this guy. Henri Serre, who plays him, is Kaufman refers to him as wooden, and it's true. Like there's not much to this guy. You don't get any sense of who he is really outside of just one half of a great friendship. So yeah, that's that's part of where the emptiness that I see in this movie comes from. And the Jim character doesn't there's not there's not much at all to him that I can see. Yeah. I mean he I you know, he's he's cuter than Jules. <laughs> um like i agree with you jim is is mostly not um he he sort of takes on the role of the audience like you sort of insert yourself in in jim's role as being part of this beautiful friendship but um and also intrigued by Catherine. but you know i think the truffaut allows people to sort of um project themselves onto jim in a way but i'm with you i would have rather seen a little more concrete choices with jim uh other than just like guy who is not sure if he wants to get married yet <laughs> mm-hmm. but um i do love the scene with him and Catherine, where uh you know she kind of admits why it is that she's been cheating on on jules where she says you know i at first i was attracted to his innocence um but his insecurity turned out to be this like a part of him and not something that was curable she's like i thought i could I thought it was something that we could grow with and and it turns out that no this is just who he is. And and I I thought that was number 1. I thought that was just interesting as a as like a point. Like I think that that is you know, it is it is a legit point for why she would be unhappy with him. It's not a it's not an excuse for, you know, cheating on your husband or whatever and driving him mad. But um it was it was definitely interesting for her to sort of confess that to to the to Jim, who is, I guess, in a way becomes the other version of of Jules in her mind, is at least how I read it, that he is this other the other half of Jules. And so if she already feels like she has conquered, you know, the first half, now she's going for the second half. And that in the end that they can't have a child, I think is to her just the is is a failure of creating the order that she expects, which I think is her whole thing. I think she's just constantly trying to create her own independence through her actions. So whenever she's flirting with these guys and or sleeping with them outright, she's trying to create her own, uh, you know, sense of autonomy through all of these actions and, and to not be, you know, hindered by the, the male society that she's living in. But I mean, that doesn't make her like a nice person. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that there there is a you know, quite a bit that's really really toxic about her even though I think that she's in in the time that she's doing this fairly sympathetic. Yeah. Well, you found a bit more depth of character and purpose in this movie that I found after having seen it several times. It, and I and I definitely see where you're coming from. The problem is it kind of spoils the uh, the conclusion that I was going to to draw from this film or just the connection I was going to make. The last time we did this where we had the ghost of a deceased 60s critic come in and and speak their opinions on on the film we're talking about was uh, Bonnie and Clyde who brought in Pauline Kael's essay. Bonnie and Clyde is this sort of the film that's, you know, notably brings the whole French New Wave 
aesthetic to American film and, and, you know, made it, made it popular, you know, sort of brought in the whole new Hollywood and, and this, uh, you know, personal style of filmmaking into, you know, Hollywood film. And, um, I find that, um, you know, after having seen Bonnie and Clyde several times that it, it is, it is like Jules and Jim in that it's, it's all technique and it's pretty empty when you get right down to it, there's not enough in the the film, the story, the characters to really make it pay off seeing it over and over again. It's just uh, sort of flashy, all style, and not a whole lot of substance. And I was going to make the connection between Bonnie and Clyde being sort of this side of, of French New Wave, where it's, it is all just sensation and technique and, you know, showing off and drawing in the audience through, you know, a lot of activity and fast cutting and exciting filmmaking techniques and yeah so that is sort of what french new wave brought to world cinema in a lot of ways you know the bergmans and the the antonioni sort of brought this depth of feeling and you know really philosophical and you know got people thinking about you know really adult ideas there's there's that aspect of of the foreign cinema fandom in America in the 60s but then there was this other side this like this sensation loving like let's let's see what you know what fancy new tricks we can do with a camera sort of you know audiences who love that sort of aspect to what foreign cinema was bringing to the movies and uh and I guess I sort of want to want to put Stanley Kaufman and, and Pauline Kael on on the you know the, the two sides of that spectrum I personally lean more towards the intellectual, contemplative, adult, Bergman-esque, uh, Antonioni-esque films, and uh, and Hale is more into the, you know, sensation-seeking cinema. And, uh, yeah, that's that's what I, that's the conclusion I draw from, from bringing these two films and these two critics together and uh, and talking about what they meant to 60s cinema. I, li- I don't know, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> But I do think we need to do Andrew Saris next. I think he's the other really strong critical voice that we get in, in American film criticism in the 60s. And between the three of them, you get the full range of, of what what this cult of cinema was at the time. And that I'm that I'm really jealous of not having lived through myself. Right, which is, which is arguably just as important as, you know, going back and watching the movies. <laughs> You know, to, to to sort of have an understanding of where critics were coming from and how these how these opinions about what is, you know, canon gets formed and how it gets formed. I mean, like I always find that, I, I you know, even when I disagree with with a lot of these uh, reviews, at least they're typically bringing up some some aspect of of a film that is, I think, just as compelling and interesting, whether or not uh, I think it's the the right interpretation which you know is is kind of a bullshit concept (laughs) whether or not it's my interpretation i suppose you know the right one even though i'm i'm you know i'm i'm more inclined like uh like this review you know i i've there's plenty of times where i've i wrote something off and then revisited it you know years later or even not that long after and realized i was totally wrong about this or like i i watched something and i hated it and then i couldn't stop thinking about it to the point that i realized like oh actually it's love (laughs) (laughs) so um 
Yeah, I mean, so I, I always find it interesting. And I certainly don't think that, you know, and for what you just said, this, your, your, your conclusion, I don't think there's anything to argue with. I think that that that's completely. I, I think I think you're right. <laughs> Even though I I you know got I I managed to find something to really hook onto emotionally in this film. I think that it had a bit to do with the fact that I've I've had in my own personal life I've had friendships that were even that were built on similar structures. Didn't end in like a you know, like a freaky marriage situation. But like, I've had friendships where I was so happy that I, I chose the friendship over the love interest. And so to me, like, I just immediately, but had I watched this even, I don't know, as a teenager, there's no way in hell I would have considered it. And I might have even been like, ah, she's, she's lame. <laughs> you know, like, I might have even just like totally dismissed it. Or, you know, if you just don't, you know, if, if it's something that again, you know, you're not, as I said, projecting onto this movie, which is the thing that I'm also even criticizing other people for doing of projecting their own ideals onto it and, and seeing the good when I think it's like Kaufman, I think it's a horror movie. But, but yeah, I mean, it's always interesting. Yeah, I'm sure it's my fault. But in trying to recapture what was happening in cinema in the 60s and why there's an audience for all these great, interesting films, I really do find myself going back to the critics of the time to understand, you know, what was happening. We probably we don't address on the show enough what was happening in the world, in the news, at the time that these films were made. And maybe that's more important. Maybe it is, you know, important to see what was what people were responding to and why that, you know, their ability to appreciate more challenging films in the sixties was, you know, sort of went along with this sort of spirit of, of the changing times and, and uh, all the big news events that were happening. But uh, really it takes going back to these critics for me to really see what, what people were responding to and what, and who this audience was that they were going to see foreign films as, on a weekly basis. Oh, let's 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 go see last year at Marionbad down at the art theater. I hear it's great. And, you know, people would go see this extremely challenging film and would would talk about it all night long. And and, uh, you know, that was just maybe maybe I have an idealized version of of what uh, what film going audiences were like in the 60s. And in reality, it's nothing like that. And it's kind of a skewed perspective based on these these 60s critics I've read. So maybe like Jules and Jim, I need to stick to this idealized version rather than try and really uh, un understand it in reality. Yeah, it's tough because on one hand, I, I, I'm with you. Like, I think it's really important to consider the time that these movies came out and, and have an understanding of how they were actually received. And also an understanding that not everyone was going on down to the art film to... <laughs> <laughs> to spend their Saturday night discussing it, you know, and that this was still a pretty, um, in the grand scheme of the population of, let's say the United States is still a pretty uh, niche experience that, that gets, you know, elevated in our minds and, and elevated in culture because that's, that's what preserves. We don't, we're not preserving the, the thoughts of, you know, Joe Indiana in the sixties. <laughs> <laughs> and his thoughts on last mm -hmm. year in Marion Bad, but <laughs> well, the fact is, you know, La Dolce Vita was one of the ten biggest hits in American theaters in 1960. So there was, you know, there are dollar figures to support this idea that people were going to art cinema 
in greater numbers, taking it sure, taking it more seriously, more interested in challenging themselves when when they're going out for their evenings entertainment. But then so many people misinterpreted La Dolce Vita as actually being about the good life, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, not the critics. But... The decadence is definitely the the appeal. We'll have to we'll have to talk about that movie soon, but uh like whenever it's it's kind of like that weird, you know that like phenomenon of of how um like college-aged girls have posters of Breakfast at Tiffany's? <laughs> <laughs> or like at least like you see it like and when you go to college and you go to the store and you want to buy a poster it's like when for the time that i was in college it was like uh you know batman uh like fuck what else i don't know boondock saints <laughs> you know all like like fight club and then for the girls it was like breakfast at tiffany's and like freaking pretty in pink or whatever the hell you know all these movies where it was like this bizarre mix of like like blue is for boys pink is for girls but for breakfast at tiffany's especially i was like have you guys actually seen <laughs> have you seen this movie <laughs> because it is not but i like... think it is kind of this yeah on a certain level all the girls with the breakfast at tiffany's poster want to be holly go lightly but in reality i think they're they're seeing themselves in that character that they're that they're phonies just like she is with these pretenses of being these high class rich girls who are you know completely elegant and I don't know I think it works on both levels like La Dolce Vita like and like this movie is Jules and Jim is you know it's tempting to say that you know people went to see this movie because they thought they were going to get this you know sexy menage a trois film and that's not what this is at all. And I think people recognize that that's not, they're not seeing a positive portrayal of, you know, the sexy decadent lifestyle. I think it's this idea that, yeah, well, uh, there's this, there's this fantasy and there's this reality and both are appealing to me. And I think that's, that works for all of the La Dolce Vita, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Jules and Jim. And that's why people continue to love these films. True. And I think that any portrayal of, of these alternative lifestyles is typically a positive in the sense that you're putting the idea out there of something that could be. And I think that many people take it as like, well, on paper, it's great. <laughs> you know, like, okay, yeah, yeah, the movie was told me about how this ruins your life, but on paper. <laughs> yeah. Though I think you're being too generous with the breakfast at tiffany's girls i think they more look at a, a, a very attractive woman and and see the word tiffany's and think love it <laughs> i don't know if people well. watch that movie i'm, I'm like convinced <laughs> no one's seen it because it, it's like just there's such a bizarre i don't know that movie's so depressing <laughs> <laughs> that's another one i can't wait to talk about that one too there's still so many important 60s movies we haven't gotten to. We spend too much time with the... OSS 117. <laughs> <laughs> Not the unimportant movies, but the ones that appeal to us. Like OSS 117. Well, Cinema 60 is going to be around forever. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to all of them. We'll get to all of them eventually. I do fantasize about when we can do Cinema 70, but we not until we're finished with Cinema 60, so... The, the more I do the show, the more I realize that the number of films that were made in the 60s is practically infinite. 
<laughs> we, we will never be done. The more you dig, the more you realize that there are just endless numbers of movies that nobody remembers, but it could be treasures. We're going to watch all of them. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.